Okay, we'll turn over to Galatians chapter 5, being in verses 19 through 25 this morning. Galatians 5, 19 through 25. Uh, I realize that's an unusual break, leaving one verse left in the chapter, but I think it'll make sense as we uh, deal with this week and next week. Uh, for our visitors' sake, we've been going through Galatians uh, passage by passage. So we are we find ourselves this morning in chapter 5, verses 19 through 25. Uh, let's pray. And then we'll get into to God's holy word. Our God, we are men and women of unclean lips. We dwell among people of unclean lips. And we're not worthy so much as to hear a whisper from you, let alone to be in your presence and to hear your word or to proclaim it. Yet you are glorified in purifying unclean vessels and making us uh, fit for your service. Teach us, Lord, the vanity of trying to make ourselves clean. Instead, let us look to your Spirit who sanctifies us for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5, 19 through 25. The Apostle Paul and God's holy, inerrant word. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Be yourself. That's something I hear often. Be yourself. Have you ever heard a more vague exhortation? <laughs> what does that mean? Another one, be the, become the best you you can be. Okay, so be me, but become a better me than the me I am now currently. Should I be myself or should I change myself so that I can be a better myself than myself is right now? Amen. Amen. I think the size of the self-improvement section at Barnes & Noble uh, is indicative of this confusion. Uh, Diet, exercise, relationships, 31 days to a better you, 25 ways to revitalize your relationships, 365 habits that will revolutionize your life. 365,000, what's the difference? So you're telling me I'm supposed to be myself. 
Now, the Bible is consistent and honest about the human condition. We need to change. Repent. Turn from your sins. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your cross. Follow His path, not yours. Be holy even as your Heavenly Father is holy. Now, to be clear, if all we're saying is, you know, be yourself, be true to yourself, is, is, is don't change the personality that God gave you. Don't try to be someone that you're not. Uh, be and express yourself the way that God made you with all of your uniqueness, quirks, mannerisms, interests, strengths. Uh, you know, I can get behind something like that. But, but so often it's applied to lifestyle and things that God has called sin. And it's often used as an excuse not to change, not to repent, not to put to death the rebellion in our hearts. I am who I am. Uh, You know how if you're around one person for too long, they can become irritating? Well, there's one person I can't get away from. He's terribly irritating. He's always causing me trouble. Don't you just long to be free from your own sin? To finally become what the Bible says you are fully in a consummated way, dead to sin and alive to righteousness. This is a famous passage. I think the worst thing I could do in preaching this chapter or this passage about the fruit of the spirit is to set these virtues before your eyes and say, here is what Christian virtue looks like. Do this. Be kind, good, faithful, and you will be a fruitful Christian. You see how that's setting up these virtues as law in our hearts when the whole point of Galatians is is putting to death the flesh and the works of the law and life in the Spirit. The second worst thing I think I could do is to make this blanket statement, fleshly people look like this, spiritual people look like this. Because if we're Christians, the flesh and spirit are at war within each one of us. And it's not that unbelievers are marked by works of the flesh and Christians are all perfect pictures of the fruit of the spirit. But we wrestle and struggle and war with this. So I think here's the hope in this passage for all of us who are sick of sin and long to become who we are in Christ and to be more like Christ. And it's the same message Paul's been preaching throughout the book particularly chapter 5, if you want to bear spiritual fruit, live in the Spirit and not the flesh. The temptation is when we hear these terrible works of the flesh on the one hand and the lovely fruit of the Spirit on the other hand, to be like the Galatians and to set these things up as law for ourselves, to look to the flesh to try to attain them, to try to attain our sanctification While the whole point of chapter 5 has been, the flesh cannot purify the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. So the call of this text on our lives is to a high standard of morals and virtue. But it's more than that. It's also a call to recognize that the place to seek that life is not through works of the flesh and efforts of our flesh, but as fruit given by the Holy Spirit. 
Paul sets up a contrast in these verses, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. We all know the works of the flesh. And the reason is that the moral law of God has been written on our hearts as image bearers. Or another way we could put it is the character of God is imprinted on our souls as image bearers. We know intuitively and universally as human beings, uh, murder is bad. (laughs) Sleeping with your neighbor's wife is bad. Stealing is bad. Dishonesty is bad. We know these things. And we know it pragmatically as well, because in the final analysis, God's ways work. It's self-evident that stealing is bad for society. Marital unfaithfulness is bad for the family. Murder is obviously bad for society. But just because we know deep down doesn't mean that as fallen image bearers, our consciences aren't seared to a greater or lesser degree, which accounts for things like the justification of genocides or mass murder in the form of abortion or the sexual revolution, including normalization of of fornication, pornography, and homosexuality, all of which Romans 1 tells us is part of the judgment of God. Like a good parent, he lets us go our own way as we feel the consequences. We have chosen to go our own way as thankless people worshiping the creation and and the gift rather than the creator and the giver. And he's given us over to debased mind. And yet we know, deep down we know, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, what I want you to see here, which I didn't notice on the surface, and I think is really important to see, Paul's not dealing with the Corinthian church here. You know, people who are dealing with extensive indulgence in the flesh. He's talking to the Galatians, people who are legalists. They're not interested in indulging the flesh. And yet he says this. He's, and the funny thing is, you, you can almost feel the, the, the faces of the Judaizers flushing red. Paul puts them in the same category as the people who do these things on this vice list. He's told them over and over again in this letter that their works of the law are works of the flesh. And now he says the works of the flesh are evident. And he lists all these terrible things. You can see what he's doing here. He's basically saying the root of their legalism is the same root of fleshly lust and passions. That's significant for any of us who are passionate about morality and holiness. That if we treat law-keeping and morality as currency by which we pay God back, our good fruit is really just a, a wax apple on a dead tree. Works-based religion shares the same roots with outright paganism and hedonism. The flesh, the old man, Adam... So we must remember that as we seek to live holy lives, and we do seek to live holy lives, pleasing before God, the place to seek that sanctification and transformation is not in works of the law, in works of our flesh and human effort. Let's quickly go through uh, this vice list. 
Again, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Obviously, this is not comprehensive, he says, and things like these. It's always funny to me, really, in some of Paul's other vice lists, the things he includes. Like In two different ones, he includes disobedience to parents. I don't leverage this too much, parents, but he, he includes disobedience to parents next to things like uh, inventors of evil or abusive and unholy. Other times he says that covetousness is idolatry. I don't think about disobedience to parents and covetousness in the same sentence as like death row crimes, you know, but Paul does. Here in this list, we have three basic categories, sexual sins, uh, sins of misplaced worship, and then social sins or lifestyle sins. Um, The first three are the sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And all, all three really represent what one commentator called sexual malfeasance. Fornication, adultery, pornography, lust, homosexuality, promiscuity, immodesty, etc. We know what sexual immorality is. The next two are sins of misplaced worship. Idolatry is raising anything above God or equal to God in worship or affections. So it may be the obvious, a graven image. Um, it, it could be other spirits. Or it could be something as mundane as, like he said, covetousness. It's when we don't have our satisfaction in God, but in other things. Sorcery, this is an interesting one. I want to pause here just because it's interesting. When's the last time you committed the sin of sorcery? I think sorcery is ultimately turning to other beings or forces to try to manipulate or predict the future. And at its heart, it's a lack of dependence on God and his providence and an attempt really to look behind the curtain of his secret will. So I haven't been to the local sorcerer lately, but the root heart issue I have committed regularly And as an aside on sorcery, make no mistake that other forces and spiritual beings are real. And we can interact with them if we want to. Sometimes I think we, we think those people who, who talk about that stuff are crackpots. They're just making stuff up. Um, I've had lots of people tell me, well, well, I've seen things. I have no doubt that you have seen things. The question is, are those things honest? Do those things have your best interest in mind? And are we permitted or forbidden in Scripture to interact with them? I find that sin interesting, the sin of sorcery. Uh, The next several are social or relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy. Um, You can distinguish these as the the, the very root of them is pride and self-service rather than self-sacrifice and love, fighting and quarreling, wanting what others have, um, you're ultimately, it's a failure to count others as more important than yourselves. 
And then these lifestyle sins, drunkenness and orgies, or, or perhaps more comprehensively, um, as some translations say, drunkenness and carousing. Uh, it's the party lifestyle. It's indulging your flesh. Just on its surface, on its face. Now Paul often offers a, a stern warning here. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the time he warned them before isn't in this letter, but uh, probably when he visited them the first time in Galatia. Now, now, does Paul mean to say here, anyone who ever commits one of these sins is, is headed for hell? You, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And here, here's a fine example of what Michael's been teaching us in Sunday school, in, in that it's unhelpful and actually mishandling God's word to just read it flat out literalistically. You could see the problem if we did that here. If we just lift this verse off the page without considering context and the whole of what the Bible has to say about the subject and just say, look what it says. It means what it means. We'll arrive at a very helpful and untrue doctrine. We'll have to require perfection. Instead, we need to synthesize the whole of what the Bible teaches. And 1 Corinthians 6 actually helps us do that uh, here. Very similar list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the important bit. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. The issue here is those who live in unrepentant sin. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who cling to their sin, those who maintain their sin as part of their identity, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice again, I think Paul's needling the Judaizers here. They're people who have prioritized the curbing of the flesh. But by connecting their self-based system of sanctification with these other works of the flesh, he's saying, neither will these flesh workers inherit the kingdom of God. The issue is not so much the things that we do and don't do. The issue is, where is our faith? Is our faith in ourselves, whether it's a faith that worldly pleasures will make me the most happy? Or if it's a faith that I can make myself right before God? Or is our faith in Christ, that what He commands is best for me? That freedom from the guilt and the bondage of sin is in the cross. And that He and He alone can make me right with God. As we get into the fruit of the Spirit, uh, notice the contrast. Verse 22, he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, he, he begins, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Jesus in Matthew 12 says, 
Matthew 12:33 through 35. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The big question and the problem there is who is the good person? There is no one good, not even one. How can we bear good fruit? Calvin comments here, he says, Now, he now informs us that all virtues are proper and well regulated affections proceed from the Spirit, that is, from the grace of God and the renewed nature which we derive from Christ. Uh, I think sometimes sanctification can kind of become a, a Bigfoot in our minds. It's like a mythical creature that we hear about, but we never see. And sometimes we act like there's no such thing as spiritual fruit in the Christian life. Because rightly, we're so strongly attached to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And and rightly, we don't want to disrupt that. But we can use this sort of Bigfoot mentality as an excuse for our flesh, as an excuse for our lack of fruit. We're confronted with our sin and we'll say things like, Yep, I could do better there. I'm a sinner. Praise God for Jesus, right? And then there's no commensurate effort to change. I just want to say that the Bible has a word for that attitude. It's called unrepentance. Unrepentance is a mark of unbelief. As Christians, progress may be and is slow, much slower than we would like. Harvest of fruit, much smaller than we would like. But there will be fruit. If the root is good, the fruit will be good as well. I think we can bank on that. You may look at your life now and say, I I don't see it. But look back at your life 10, 15, 20 years ago and compare the two. You probably shake your head at what you were like 20 years ago. That's a good thing. That shows progress, growth, and fruit. You look at an apple on a tree one day, and then the next day you won't see or be able to measure much growth. But you look at an apple one day and two weeks later on a tree, you'll see growth. There is a real hope in Christ and in His Spirit that we will really actually grow in grace. And in fact, I think it should be an eager and expectant, um, an expectant hope in our lives. And that's what Paul's driving at, that that the only, only, only way we can have that kind of hope is when we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Which, to make that practical, we dealt with it a few sermons ago, and I can send it to you if you weren't able to make it, but um, just a a few comments on what it means to walk by the Spirit. Uh, Again, walking by the Spirit is not some mystical, sensationalized experience. It is very practical. Romans 8 tells us that, that part of it, at least, is about the life of the mind. What are we thinking about? Is our mind on heavenly things or on earthly things? Also, we talked 
about making use of the means of grace, the things in which God in His providence has provided for us that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us in grace. These are just a few practical ways to walk by the Spirit. Now let's briefly look at the the fruit of the Spirit here. Um, And I won't be able to cover them in detail. I've gone back and forth about whether we should devote a, a sermon to just the fruit of the Spirit. So let me know if that intrigues you and we'll head that direction. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, and it really, generally, they're pretty self-explanatory. Every commentator I read notes that love is put first. I think there's a reason for that. Love is kind of the root of the rest of them. As we saw a few weeks ago, rather than using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, through love, instead we should serve one another. Because the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. And as we talked about, love is mutual submission and service, counting others more significant than ourselves. So we can see that bearing fruit in the rest of these, counting others more significant than yourselves. Joy, rather than covetousness, jealousy, dissatisfaction. But even in suffering, we find happiness, but because ultimately we have contentment. We have more than we deserve in the Lord. Peace, as opposed to fits of anger, dissensions, and strife. Patience. I think impatience usually arises because we are inconvenienced by someone else or by God (laughs) disrupting our plans. But he's subduing our pride and self-service brings it back around patience. Kindness, rather than acting out in division and anger, we, we positively engage with our fellow brethren. Goodness, like the original creation. Unlike what we want to do in the flesh, we are doing in the spirit what is pleasing to God, what is good. And gentleness, in contrast to fits of anger, violent outbursts, dissensions. Instead, we approach difficult situations and correction with gentleness. And then self-control. In contrast to these sexual malfeasance, drunkenness, orgies, rather than the flesh controlling us, the spirit in us allows us to have a handle on our flesh, even if imperfectly. Then he says, against such things there is no law. I I concur with Thomas Schreiner on this. Uh, The meaning of this short phrase is difficult. (laughs) That's probably the hardest phrase in here. Uh, on the one hand, he may be saying very simply, you can't argue with these virtues. There's no law against this, this list of virtues. Who can argue with them? Again, they're, on, they're, they're imprinted on our hearts because we're image bearers of God. But I think he's saying more than that. In contrast, this is in contrast to those who do the fleshly things unrepentantly and will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says there is no law against these fruit of the Spirit. In other words, I think we can, in the Spirit, lead lives consisting of fruit that is pleasing to God. 
rather than hanging over us, looming over us like a law that we can't keep and a debt we can never pay back. It's something that we take pleasure in, rejoicing in, fulfilling these fruit of the Spirit by the Holy Spirit. Schreiner again, he comments, he says, Believers are not called upon to summon up the strength within them, for their new way of life is supernatural, stemming from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Believers did not receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law, but by hearing the gospel with faith. We saw that in in 3 verse 2. Still, those who have the Spirit are not rendered inert and lifeless. The Spirit is better than the law because a life pleasing to God is the result of His work. And we see the work of God in at least two ways here at the end of this passage in verses 24 and 25. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So recall that contrast that I started with, with the difference between being yourself and becoming who you are. This here, these verses, is Paul telling us who we are. In broad biblical terms, we could classify ourselves or define the Christian life as death and resurrection. The way he puts it here in this passage is crucifixion and spiritual life or regeneration. This right here is the place we should go in our minds if we're struggling with the flesh, if we're struggling with temptations. Not necessarily first to those virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, I can do it. I can keep those. But right here, verses 24 and 25, this is who you are. Walking by the Spirit is much the same as walking by faith in the Gospel. You might even say they are the same. The Gospel preaches our freedom from the guilt of sin as well as the bondage of sin. I keep saying that and I want to emphasize it. Guilt and bondage, because we always talk about forgiveness from our guilt. But we're also freed from the bondage of sin that we can actually repent by the Holy Spirit. I keep bringing that up, but to to borrow from an author I was reading the other night, uh, I hope you're not getting tired of hearing that, because I'm not getting close to tired of saying it. (laughs) When you're struggling with your flesh to flee from the gospel or to, you, you do flee to the gospel. You say, I belong to Jesus. I have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's who I am and who I'm becoming. I have new life in Christ and in the Spirit. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is how we seek sanctification in the Spirit rather than the flesh, but by running to the cross. When we know well our secure justification, we are then free to pursue our sanctification as if there were no law, but as pleasing fruit born of the Spirit. We become more and more who we are by remembering who we are. We keep in step with the Spirit by remembering that we live in the Spirit. So, do not present your, your wax apple of works of the flesh to God as though He'll be impressed. He won't. 
Instead, by the blood of the cross of Christ and by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, reach out to Him in faith that He has indeed killed your flesh at the cross and given you new life in the Spirit. And then that He will produce in you an abundant harvest of good fruit for His glory. May the God who raised Christ from the dead equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.